0: Hello, and welcome to the new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and I'm your host, Olga Breininger. Today, our guest is Jonathan brooks Platt of the University of Pittsburgh. Jonathan will be talking about his book, Cretans Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics and the Russian National Bard, which was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2016. In Greetings Pushkin, The slide focuses on the centennial celebrations of Pushkin's death in 1937 in the Soviet Union and shows how through the figure of Pushkin we can reconstruct the very complex sense of temporality and modernization, specific of this period of Soviet history. Hello, Jonathan, and welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. We are very happy to have you with us today to talk about greetings Pushkin, Stalinist cultural politics, and the Russian national bard.
1: All right. Sounds good.
0: So how are you doing today?
1: Oh, not so bad. It's Friday. Nice autumn weather in Pittsburgh.
0: Yeah, and so is in Boston. Mm -hmm. So, traditionally, we first ask our speakers about um, their background. So, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, About myself. Well, um, in terms of my um, career in Slavism, or just myself in general, (laughs) my Um, broad biographical...
0: uh, We could could do the broad biographical. (laughs)
1: Uh, Okay, well, I don't know. I, um was born in the United States of America and uh, I traveled around a lot uh, as, as a kid and as a young man and I ended up um, uh, an undergraduate in uh, Berkeley where I studied uh, Russian literature and language. I started going traveling to Russia then it was 1996 was the first time I went. Uh, And I've spent many years living there since then. Um, I uh, did my graduate school at Columbia in New York. And um, after that, I went back to Russia for five years. I spent living in St. Petersburg, and I go to Petersburg a lot now. Um, Sometimes doing work with... uh, sort of the leftist crowd, different artists, poets, and philosophers and on the left in, in Russia, but mostly in St. Petersburg. Uh, and in 2010, I got the job here in Pittsburgh, and I've been here ever since, uh, except for one year that I spent uh, on leave in, in Petersburg again. Um, I have two children, Isaac and Arkady. Um, I don't know. What else, what else do you want to know?
0: Um, maybe what got you interested in Russian studies?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, it's quite probably similar to a lot of people. You know, I read the classic 19th century novels in high school already. And, uh, when I went to Berkeley, I basically, um, uh, decided to study Russian so that I could read these books that I liked in the original and, and eventually go to Russia and see what it was like there. And, uh, I never escaped that 17-year-old decision. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I've always had really good uh, professors at Berkeley. My main uh, professor was Olga Matich, uh, who, you know, was really inspiring. And after I left college, I moved to Russia and taught English for a couple of years. uh, But I don't know. uh, Olga kind of supported me in my idea of going to graduate school. Uh, which was good. So, and then at Columbia, I studied under Boris Gasparov, uh, you know, who's amazing. Um, and I took, I think I took like nine classes with him. So it was pretty influential. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it ended up being the, the only job I could get after that educational <laughs> background
0: so i think i mentioned um in the preface to your book that it actually grew up off an undergraduate essay you wrote in berkeley so mm-hmm. has it been almost a 20 a year journey then with pushkin yeah and- yeah
1: i mean it really was i mean because i i started i don't know i mean it's kind of the the logic behind the kind of uh, the analysis that i do started really with this paper i wrote for olgamatch in in berkeley um also, uh, Liza Knapp had a little bit of influence on it, I think, because she was the fir- first person who told me to read Jakobson, and I had some kind of Jakobsonian metaphor and metonymy thing behind it. Um, but, yeah, and that it just kind of evolved. I mean, it's also had all sorts of weird, I think I talk about in the preface, how it has kind of personal uh, uh, things, like, you know, related to uh, mood disorders and so on. <laughs>
0: <How> <laughs> yeah, that is I actually see, really powerful.
1: Yeah, how I see myself as split between these kind of... Uh, the. The in the dissertation it was ecstasy and elegy, and so this kind of mournful, uh, depressed phase versus the more ecstatic uh, manic phase. But uh, uh, I don't know. So I mean, it's it was kind of a, a long. I was just in you know diving into. It started with modernist prose, but uh, when I got to Columbia, I started getting interested in Stalinist culture and. Uh, um, yeah, so I was kind of using Stalinism as a as a therapeutic as a form of self therapy. I think uh, as much as producing a work of scholarship, which is kind of strange. But
0: and I think that conceptually you moved quite far along from the metaphor and metonymy of your capsons. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the uh, the f- theoretic fr- framework of your book.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, it it, it evolved a lot. Um, I mean, the, the metaphor and metonymy thing was was kind of the what I what I did with it is I um, I talked in terms of heroism, right? So I was I think I was looking at I was comparing the the prose. I mean, mostly I was the paper was about the prose of Pasternak and and the early prose of Nabokov um, as being unheroic in its metonymic uh, thrust. That there's a kind of reluctance to uh, to pursue this, you know, what Jakobson would associate with metaphors, this kind of uh, uh, more vertical uh, unification of, of of ideas that, you know, I think he, he relates to Mayakovsky mostly. Uh, but anyway, that, that kind of really persisted um, in, in a, a kind of this approach to the 1937 Jubilee as, um, you know, trying to understand how it was both a revolutionary event, uh, both a continuation of the radical revolutionary impulse of, of uh, Soviet society, but at the same time also uh, an attempt to, you know, follow broader trends in, in, in Europe at the time and, and sort of anchor the new Soviet culture to, uh, to the past, uh, in ways that had been resisted, uh, uh, in the previous years. Um, and so it kind of, uh, which, which has, you know, in the history of, of the Soviet Union, uh, Stalinism in particular has been kind of seen as, as a kind of retreat from, um, you know, the, uh, the universalist kind of uh, utopianism of, of of the the revolution of 1917 and and avant garde culture and, and a lot of different things like that and so I, kind of what I was trying to do is was see how and actually you could find um, two different attitudes and I and I look at them in terms of uh, temporality in the in the book. Um, well, and you know the final name for the uh, the two different types of temporality or, or i talk about them as chronotopes using Bakhtin, um is monumentalism and eschatology also problematic in some in many ways and people always jump on me for using the word eschatology which doesn't fit uh if we if we look at it in it's in it's sort of um you know prototypical meaning uh, but basically what i what i what i do is i, I talk about how I, Pushkin. I mean, the simplest way of describing it is saying that Pushkin simultaneously is is sort of living on as a monument uh, that is kind of r- whose um, you know uh, our memory of of the past of this this moment of foundation this moment of origin uh, of you know the creation of the Russian literary language all these kind of monumental achievements that are associated with Pushkin that that uh, we kind of uh, as a culture we preserve uh, that memory we return again and again to that sort of uh, core of value in our culture in order to sort of anchor, uh, our identity as we move forward in time. Uh, and that's sort of the monumentalist approach, uh, where, but at the same time, Pushkin also is kind of living again, right? He's not just living on, but he's, he's living again a new, uh, existence that is radically different from his own time, from his own life. That in some ways, Pushkin is only, uh, his legacy only really has come into being with, uh, with you know the Stalinist Constitution of 1936 or the Revolution or, or uh, however you want to mark that the, this fiery kind of apocalyptic threshold where the past you know has kind of has been judged now uh, which is a model that that uh, Buddy uses in, in his Stalin book um, but that uh, so some some figures of the past are now consigned to the dustbin of history while while others are brought forward in this kind of uh, uh, this leap across time. Um, with, through all sorts of different devices, uh, showing Pushkin as being prophetically aware of the future revolution to come, the future society, um, you know, having artistic representations of Soviet people jumping back into time to, to rescue Pushkin uh, from his untimely death, things like that, all sorts of different ways that they, they figure this. Uh, And I call it eschatological in the sense that there is a, I mean, partially because it has this apocalyptic quality to it, uh, but also uh, because it, it posits a kind of a different dimension of time from sort of linear, everyday, um, uh, kind of, you know, clocks and calendars time, uh, that can be, that is founded on, on a principle of rupture, right? So that we can have some kind of, um, extra temporal connection to Pushkin. Uh, we can imagine fusing our own, uh, revolutionary horizon with the horizon of his, his, uh, much darker time that was much further away from the revolutionary moment, but have some kind of, uh, contact with him as our, um, as a sort of, you know, a man, someone who fought for the same thing that we are fighting for and that we have achieved. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the, the, the book kind of, um, that's the sort of overarching, um, you know, uh, argument of the book is that both of these things are happening simultaneously. <coughs> um, sometimes they're even fused in weird ways. Uh, so, like, the the classic, the, the central metaphor image in the book is is that of Pushkin as a living statue, where you get both of these kind of uh, um, attitudes to time simultaneously. On the one hand, he's this permanent uh, monumental figure, um, I, but at the same time, it's, it's a living thing. It's not just, it's not like a, a normal monument, which is kind of hollow and and requires, you know, the attention of the of the crowd gathered around it to sort of uh, give it an illusion of, of life, this metaphorical living on in our in our hearts or our memories or whatever. Um, but with when the, the statue actually comes to life, typically in scenes where it's like communicating with the contemporary um, Soviet people, joining them in the celebrations, or or like you'll have pictures of children reading Pushkin's poems to a statue of Pushkin. This kind of interesting, tautological uh, image. Uh, that uh, there, you are also getting this this uh, figure of, you know, Pushkin emerging from eternity into our present, or or descending from from some other realm into our uh, to join us um, in our contemporary struggle, um, and, and that's what I describe as eschatological. So, but but then uh, alongside that, I also in you know, theoretical parts, I, every chapter kind of adds uh, little bits of of other. Um, things usually revolving around the question of of modernity. I, I look at these attitudes to time in terms of uh, the discourse of modernity and how uh, both uh, monumentalism and eschatology go back, you know, to the to um, antiquity. But uh, as as ways of, of thinking about the modern, right? Uh, that that the modern is not doesn't just start with the Renaissance or or the French Revolution or whatever you want to say. Uh it, it as a concept it goes back to uh to late antiquity and, and Rome and this kind of idea of what is our time and what is the relationship of our time to, for example, the the great past, uh of, you know the, the legacy of the past, or or as you get into more medieval uh times, the towards this kind of um, end that's coming. Uh, and the way I, I, I talk about it is that um these these two attitudes uh in the period that we call uh, modernity or, or no in, in, in the Neuzeit in, uh, other languages um, is uh, they become ambivalent to themselves. So you cannot no longer, you can't really relate your, the contemporary modern moments our time are the, the threshold of the now to some kind of static uh, fixed past or eternal realm uh, that will, you know, eventually come to uh, occupy uh, to replace our, our sort of profane temporality in an eschatolo- eschatological model, that those 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 external kind of that external past or that external future uh, cease to um, kind of. They, they can't really, uh, dominate the present like they used to. The present acqu- acquires its own special value and you start to get these weird interactions where, uh, you can, so in sort of modern, properly modern monumentalism, you return to the past in order to anchor, uh, you return again and again. You have to keep going back. We get this kind of iterative quality where you have to keep going back to this kind of moment of origin that isn't, doesn't really, uh, have a kind of, um, uh, clear, uh, substance. Uh, and, and, and you go back in order to then go forward again, in order to sort of preserve identity as you go forward. Whereas, and the eschatological model and its ambivalence becomes this kind of, uh, a similarly iterative kind of, um, need to constantly, uh, introduce ruptures in time in order to sort of, you know, an avant-garde model, for example, to, to avoid reification, to avoid, uh, automatized perception or so on. You have to sort of, uh, introduce these, these, these ruptures, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, um, the love of novelty of sort of flashes of the new, you have, you know, Baudelaire's definition of, of the modernist as, as this, uh, uh, as related to, to fashion, uh, where you, you know, specifically as a kind of, um, you know, flashing of the eternal within, within the present. Um, that that's, that's his definition of, 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 Modern that you get this weird um, kind of ambivalent uh, juncture or, or, or connection between these two two levels of time, and both of them are very similar in their in their kind of dialectical interplay, uh, and that's what allows them to be uh, in, in my analysis to be naively quite naively combined, even though they would seem to be uh, opposed to one another. Uh, but yeah, but so each of the chapter adds little things like that. So uh, you know, I talk about uh, Claude Lefort's um, you know description of, of of modernity as this kind of uh, evacuation of the place of power that, that, that uh, uh, used to, um, you know, anchor uh, the social uh, uh, in pre-modern times. I, I have, um, you know, I, I talk about uh, theories of, of nation, nationhood um, and how that applies to the specific kind of, of, uh, of interest in the past and in the national past, uh, that uh, that you get with the Pushkin Jubilee, um, and and you know, and a lot of other things as well. So, I mean, it's a it's a it's it's it has a very specific question to it, but it, I I, I'm, I hope that it's it's broad enough to to be interesting to a lot of people who are who' are looking at these kind of questions about um, you know how the modern is being constructed in the interwar period and and the Soviet Union, particularly how it is a kind of um, uh, you know the way I talk about it—that Stalinism and Stalinism, in, in many ways, for me is is the kind of um, you know it's you can look at it as an aberration, as a kind of betrayal of the revolution, and, and I think you know we have to do that in many ways. But it's all it also is kind of a um, an expected outcome, you could say, uh, as the revolutionary state tries to become its own kind of polity, tries to sort of um, uh, you know follow this policy of socialism in one country. Uh, and with that to declare itself as a kind of modern state as, a, as some alternative to, to, to capitalism, to the West, uh, that, you know, but also, uh, you know, takes things from the West and re reshapes them in, in its own way, purifies them maybe, uh, of, of certain, uh, bourgeois, um, you know, uh, contagion <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, so that's, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is, sh- is say how is show how kind of, uh, the way the revolutionary, uh, uh, society, uh, develops into this, um, particular form in the 1930s is, you know, can be seen as an attempt to kind of solve, uh, this impossible task that modernity sets us, this task of sort of um you know, uh, simultaneously feeling like we are at the cusp of some epochal moment that that our moment matters in some special way, uh, but also then uh, being uh, conscious of of the fact that our moment is just a a, a momentary threshold um, you know, between the past and the future um, and uh, so that's you know so it's kind of a, it can it can be seen as as a as a, you know, Detailed description of this of this event, uh, or taking that as a case study for the Stalinist period, uh, the, the pre-war Stalinist period as a whole, or something something even bigger. Theoretically, uh, looking at how uh, the discourse of minority really sends uh, sends us for loops. <laughs> that uh, if you really put your uh, put your mind to it, you can uh, get tangled up in all sorts of interesting doublethink and uh, um, make some crazy images. So.
0: Well, there is definitely a lot to talk about here, but probably while we are on the modernity, something I wanted to ask you is that you mentioned at some point in the book that uh, you think that with the Jubilee case, the return to Pushkin was uh, a modernization project, but also a project which demonstrated that Stalinist period had a much more complicated temporal logic to it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What were the implications of this modernist project?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. That's kind of what I was just talking about. But uh, you know, the in terms of modernization, you, I mean, so you can talk about. I mean, a lot of um, discussion of the jubilee comes in hand comes uh, in the context of discussions of a kind of uh, Russocentric turn that you get in the in the nineteen thirties, uh, which bears you know resemblance to a certain kind of. Uh, um, you know, uh, turn towards nationalism of, of one kind or another, although it's very specific in the, in the Soviet case because it's, <coughs> it still has this imperial, uh, structure in many ways. Um, but, uh, um, you know, so the general idea is that nationalism goes hand in hand with modernization because, uh, it, um, leads, it promotes the kind of creation of a, or the homogenization of, of the, of society. Um, so, you start, um, you know, you, if you create a literary canon, it means everyone in school is reading the same books, right? If you uh, and and through those books, they they develop a, a sort of literary language and norm for for communicating, um, and this allows uh, people to be more um, flexible, more mobile in moving around uh, in different industries. For example, that you can kind of expect the same general kind of person uh, as you modernize your your country, and, and instead of having people, you know. Uh, um, differentiated from one another by uh, dialectical regional differences and so on that, that are more common in, in a, in a kind of imperial, uh, structure. So, so that, so, so, for, so in terms of modernization, this monumentalist, uh, aspect of the Jubilee would be more, um, would be the thing you would expect more. Uh, because again, it's like Pushkin becomes this kind of core of value that everyone can return to and, and derive, uh, you know, a, a sense of identity from, but by participating in this, uh, event, people are, um, you know, they're basically voting yes to be Russians. Uh, and when the non-Russian people do, they're kind of uh, asserting the kind of, um, in some ways, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the... You could say the universal uh, significance of Russian culture, uh, which is something that you get very common. It's very common with national poet cults that they are uh, simultaneously kind of uh, uh, inclusionary and exclusionary. So they become part of a civilization, civilizing mission for the for the national culture that produces them. So everyone should read Shakespeare, uh, especially the, our colonies in India. Um, but at the same time, they're exclusionary in the sense that only the people in the core national culture can. Uh, can get every nuance, right? Because it speaks to them in, in some kind of special way. And you get that very much in the, in the, in the Jubilee, um, uh, in the Pushkin Jubilee where, um, there's, there's, uh, a certain degree to which, um, the celebration is meant to encourage Russian speakers, uh, and, and ethnic Russians even. But it's more, more of a cultural thing rather than an ethnic thing. Uh, but that Russian culture is, is, you know, we can now be proud of our, of our, heritage, and we can incorporate that into our uh, our socialist uh, identity. Um, but at the same time, all the other republics uh, in the Soviet Union uh, should be joining with us in celebration. <coughs> um so but so that's the the modernization thing but it, the reason the the degree to which I'm saying it's more complicated is is that uh the this model only works up to a point and then you get all these other things that come in so for example the the even the way they they emphasize the um, you know the importance to russians there's this extreme there's this real defensive quality to it because uh for a long time uh in the years before the jubilee uh Russian culture is specifically kind of uh you know you have a kind of you know what what uh Terry Martin calls it, affirmative action policies right. That there's this kind of um, uh, anxiety about um, any kind of Russian patriotic discourse. Um, that the, the the task is is to emphasize diversity in the union, and that while uh, events like the Pushkin Jubilee would seem to suggest a move away from that, you can find all sorts of ways in which they they the, a lot of the participants um, specifically will resist this this. Uh, Russo-centric picture of Pushkin. And in some way, Pushkin will be pushed towards a a fully universal, totally translatable into any kind of language that because uh, he's associated with the socialist uh, culture, uh, he kind of goes beyond uh, other national poets as into some kind of, um, um, you know, a kind of image that you you get once in a while. You'll have this pantheon of of great um, writers and artists uh, that uh, will make up the um, the utopian sort of reading list of, of world communism, and Pushkin will be the first one in the list. Um, and that's not out of Russian patriotism, but in some ways just because uh, Russia made it to socialism first, and therefore uh, its culture is going to be kind of reshaped and, and reworked um, in this, this very non-monumental fashion, very much about uh, a kind of... Uh, Mm-hmm. purging of the past of its, of its, um, you know, what errors um, it, it might've committed and so on and in order to make it uh, fit with the present. Um, so, so yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, that's, I mean, that's basically the the logic of, of the whole thing is that uh, i on one, on the one hand I'll show how it fits this general model of some kind of interwar modernization project that you get going on. So like the Nazis are having a giant celebration of Schiller in 1934 um, you know, uh, that this is not, um, a, a specifically Soviet, uh, thing that's going on. Um, and in general, the, the phenomenon of having jubilees for national poets goes back to the 18th century. Um, but that because of this, the revolutionary content of, of, of the uh, events, it takes on this kind of, um, slightly. Um, you know, this, this split characters, schizophrenic, you could say, but uh, where it's vacillating between these um, what you would seem to be a more uh, expected um, legitimizing uh, turn to Pushkin as a monumental figure and this kind of uh, strange, um, you know, interest in leaping over time and and uh, bringing Pushkin back to life in some kind of a radical new form and imagining him longing for that in the past and all these different things that they do. Um, in order to make that feeling of some kind of specific um, connection outside of time between uh, Pushkin and, and the present. Um, but,
0: uh, so in your second chapter, you are talking about um, various pedagogical texts and practices. And is there anything striking you found about the role of Pushkin and place of Pushkin in teaching in the 1930s?
1: Yeah, well I mean what I what I discovered um uh that I found quite interesting was that that literature had always been very problematic in in early Soviet education. That that in many periods when they tried to push more radical pedagogical uh agenda, they actually would cut literature. They would never they wouldn't have a chronological sort of uh, history of of Russian literature or world literature. They would just use literary texts uh here and there to illustrate um more socioeconomic kind of uh uh, topics. And, uh, uh, but then whenever they would find that those utopian kind of radical practices weren't working in some way that they were too difficult to, to implement and so on, they would retreat to, you know, using that word retreat, but they would kind of uh, withdraw from that and, and go to something more traditional uh, and then introduce a literature um, class, a proper literature class um, uh, along with that. So literature had this kind of uh, intrinsically conservative uh, quality in, in the Soviet schools that that like part of what inventing a new school was about would, would be to get rid of that kind of idea of a literary canon, um, which makes sense in terms of all this this stuff about um, monumentalism that I've been talking about. That there's a kind of um, tendency to to want to an iconoclastic tendency in, in early Soviet culture that wants to resist that. <coughs> but what what happens in the Jubilee is that you have this massive um, kind of Intrusion of Pushkin into the into the schools and all sorts of um, performative uh, methods that they do to bring Pushkin to life, right? Um, and a lot of education, you know, pedagogues, pedagogical sort of uh, leaders in the field and so on, were using the events to put forward a kind of new way of doing literature, one that actually isn't that different from from things that were going on in the West, um, and and in many ways, which is still, um, you know um, um, relevant in, in, I think in literature teaching, although at least it was when I was, when I was in school. Um, but where you look at, at books as a kind of, um, an entryway into life, right? That there's a kind of experience of a text that you get, uh, that sort of, um, prepares you for, for true, for real experiences, kind of virtual testing ground or something. Um, and what, so what they, what that meant is they had to emphasize emotional response over everything else that, um, so if you, if in, uh, earlier times when, it, when you would read, and this is even in those, in those more conservative periods when they, when you would read, uh, the literary canon, it's filled with all sorts of anxiety about, uh, the dangers of these old texts that they're going to have, uh, the wrong ideology and the children are going to get confused. And, and so the textbooks are filled with all sorts of criticism of the thing that you're reading. So if you can imagine, I mean, how, um, nice it would be to be reading Pushkin and then, you know, the next thing you have to do is learn how to say that he was a, you know, he was an aristocrat and he had, uh, um, you know, uh, reactionary ideas about um, the peasants, which you can see in certain works. And after 1825, he became a, you know, a, a toady for the czars and, and and so on. And then you're supposed to also at the same time be reading this stuff and, and getting something out of it. Um, that that was finally put to bed. Uh, in in the 30s around the time of the jubilee around what, when the first announcement of uh, the jubilee came out in, in 1935 um, or actually already in 34 it started even earlier but it, it the the main campaign in the school starts at the end of 35 um, they and this um, these methods that they would use all these different, Kind of, you know this kind of embodying the text through um, you know this what this uh, expressive reading, um, doing all sorts of art projects, uh, theatrical productions. You, know, you get kind of bizarre things like uh, you know I have this one picture of uh, a gymnastics thing where they spell the kids get into positions spelling out Pushkin's name you get all of this kind of uh, the way I talk about it in terms of a kind of uh, the students are turned into these kind of militant uh, you know um, um, kind of figures who are uh, resurrecting Pushkin like that's their main task is sort of using their um, um, their passion and their dedication um, and their you know uh, um Enthusiasm for, for socialism to, uh, rescue Pushkin from the dark past, uh, and all those, those dangerous things that, that would have been criticized in, you know, five, ten years before, um, just to kind of lift him out of that darkness and, and shower him with, with socialist love, uh, t- transforming him. So, uh, and that kind of, these kind of, uh, this kind of, the use of these kind of practices, um, these kind of performative pedagogical practices, Uh, And especially Jubilees uh, really, you know, became a standard uh, method uh, and allowed for, in general, for the reintroduction of more um, kind of uh, traditional literary historical um, um, curriculum because you could constantly, you know, perforate that, the study of literature as history uh, with these kind of performative resurrective. Uh, um uh, activities right so you uh you learn about uh pushkin but then you make a um you know a model of the duel where you kind of uh, and, and and it fills you with such um sadness to see him about to get shot that you uh, uh are are sort of drawn to rescue pushkin from the duel <laughs> rip him out of the model and so on and put him somewhere else. But anyway, so, 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 so that's the kind of thing that they found a technique that allowed them to kind of get over the old anxieties about, about canonical literature. Um, and it really had a a major impact on, on how things were taught in school. Now, of course, uh, you know, the, the militant, um, passion of, of the Soviet Union doesn't last very long after the war. And, um, you know, a lot of these things become exactly what people who remember the Soviet Union consider to be like the most mind numbing, uh, aspects of Soviet education, memorizing poems and, uh, and things like that and having to, you know, make these albums for, for, you know, putting newspaper clippings and so on into albums for, for Jubilee dates. Um, um, but, but, you know, the, the idea was, was progressive at the time and, and and was seen as a way to sort of brew militancy in the, in the, the children specifically, um, in this case specifically with regard to the pre-revolutionary literary past. So,
0: And how about the intellectuals? Um, you write in um, Chapter 3 about the <laughs> academic writing about Pushkin, and it seems that uh, the scholars also had some problems, you know, situating Pushkin in the temporality, and you bring Vinogradov as one of the more successful examples of it.
1: Yeah, well, Vinogradov is weird because he, uh, basically the way I talk about it, his... Um, two-volume, you know, his massive two-volume two volume, uh, book on Pushkin's language and Pushkin's style is that uh, he really has this kind of nationalist, monumentalist approach, right? And it's it's completely, it's not actually um, uh, tempered with anything, any of this other stuff, this relevance of Pushkin for our times. He's not talking about why Pushkin is relevant to, to socialist society uh, uh, because... Uh, he really, you know, I'm talk he says, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the na- Russian national poet and what he did with the Russian language. And that is something that will be relevant for all times. And no matter what shape our, our, um, our, you know, country takes. Uh, and, you know, and he got persecuted. He was, you know, uh, um, uh, accused of, of nationalist uh, sort of connections uh, of a, of a right wing sort of heresy uh, in a fabricated case. But, you know, there's, there's clearly... <clears throat> um you know, some truth to to the association of him with that kind of uh uh thinking. Um but uh but the, the reason I use him kind of as a as a setup for, for the people that I'm more interested in uh who do try to address this, who do try to bring in this alternative temporality, this more eschatological um temporality based on rupture and 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 an association of, of the, the past with the present. Um, so, but, but there my main, um, I, the main sort of theoretical, um, um, sort of addition is, uh, Ranciere, um, and this idea of modern literature as having, as, as practicing a different kind of politics, um, which you find in various, um, people like Lydia Ginzburg writing in the thirties around the time of the Jubilee, um, and some other people uh, you get this, um, willing, uh, this, this sort of, um, uh, a, a kind of, uh, what, what would have been rare, very rare, or, or even impossible in, in, in previous years, this, this willingness to say that Pushkin was not, uh, a political poet, right? Primarily, um, that in fact he, um, withdraws from, uh, politics after 1825, uh, you know, separates himself from the Decemberists in order to produce a kind of aesthetic vision uh, that has a different kind of political um, efficacy or significance, which is, you know, an, an interesting, very similar to the kind of things that Ron says. Um, so the, in, in terms of um, temporality, the way it, it, it works out usually is that that withdrawal that Pushkin has to make from, from the sort of politics of wills, the politics of sort of, of trying to influence, um, uh, you know, the the state specifically or, or even uh, uh, overthrow the czar uh, that you get with the Decembrists uh, and with their poetry, uh, that Pushkin withdraws from that into this more um, kind of flat. Uh, I mean, generally the way it's talked about is that you can, that the instead of having a hierarchical uh, genre system or a hierarchy of different styles, that you get this kind of single um, vision of things and, and anything can be incorporated into a literary work, uh, regardless of its sort of, um, its high, its sort of loftiness or its, or its baseness. Um, and that you get this kind of democratic vision that is, that has a political, uh, quality to it in the fact, simply from the fact that it is no longer, uh, supporting a kind of hierarchy of, uh, of, um, of styles and of types of speech. Um, So the idea, though, is that for Pushkin, that that comes as a kind of tragedy that he uh, experiences this um, this withdrawal from politics as part of the tragedy of his life. And that, you know, he's, uh, um, you know, increasingly sort of. Uh, finds himself increasingly embroiled in different contradictions and so on. But then that tragedy has this, this revolutionary potential because we are the fulfillment of it. We are the redemption uh, of that past. So in, in, in some ways, Pushkin creates this modern uh, vision, this democratic vision, but it, it doesn't, it actually isolates him from, from society because the society is so backwards that it can't sort of take advantage of it. But we are now that the, the workers are liberated and the workers know how to read um, or peasants, uh, for that matter, that uh, that that um, that moment of of uh, aesthetic um, innovation or whatever you want to call it uh, is finally being realized as uh, as its its political efficacy is finally um, being realized uh, today. So in 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 the way that uh, that we read it. So it's it's again it's a, it's a kind of similar thing uh it's you know focusing on this I mean the eschatological part really tends to focus on on how the builders of socialism how the contemporary soviet reader um actually uh how that presence, this this kind of um this encounter between Pushkin and the soviet reader is itself transformative uh of Pushkin um so and you get that in scholarly uh, works as in as in the things people were doing in schools. So,
0: and how about uh, visual arts, performance, or film? So, how did the image of Pushkin arise in these genres during the jubilee ce- celebrations?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I talk about a lot of different things. I talk about uh, paintings and uh, monumental sculpture, um, historical novels. Uh, historical films that were made for the Jubilee. Um, there's some plays that I talk about, poetry, lyric poetry as well, um, and then you know, each each thing has a has a slightly different um, uh, set of questions associated with it. Um, so I don't know. If, so for example, the the question of monumental sculpture uh, that generally you have this tendency to kind of um, resist the very you know, the kind of essence of a monument, which is its permanence and its sort of stasis as this kind of, um, you know, um, this object that uh, that the, the people gather around and, and uh, focus their attention on giving them a kind of uh, collective identity. Instead, the kind of monuments of Puchkin that were popular, and the, they had a lot of um, competitions to design a, a new monuments, uh, none of which were actually uh, realize, but, uh, they would show, they show Pushkin moving in, in various ways. Like he's windswept or, I mean, it's, 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 uh, recognizable from, <laughs> from Stalinist, uh, uh, from Soviet sculpture generally, uh, especially from the late, the later part of the thirties, when you get a little bit more, um, things get a little more windswept. Uh, <laughs> if you think of uh, worker and collective farm girl or something, um, but, uh, so there's, so there's that, this kind of weird, um, need to <clears throat> make the monument itself look like it's kind of, um, um, it's alive and not, and, and moving and not just, uh, a, a static fixed image. Um, and they have all sorts of different ways of, 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 talking about how that could be achieved. None of them really are convincing visually, but the, the discourse itself is, is fascinating. Um, you get other things, I mean, in painting, you get a a similar problem where you have a a lot of historical portraits of Pushkin, um, try to show him in this, uh, this moment, this kind of moment of confrontation with, with his, the tragedy that I was talking about before. Right. Or so like he will, um, you know, you have a, like a painting where he meets Dantes in the, in the Letnissade or something. Um, and he's just kind of appears all shocked and, and frozen. And, and they, what's interesting is that the, the critics would always attack these kinds of, of, paintings, um, because they, they drain the life out of Pushkin's face or something. They have this kind of fascination with, with how you would make Pushkin's, uh, living features, uh, directly visible, uh, to viewers today. Um, and people tried some really weird things. There's this one painting, uh, by this woman, Nadezhda uh, uh, Radlova, uh, where she paints Pushkin with this really broad, toothy smile, uh, standing on the Neva embankment, um, and he looks basically like he's posing for a photograph. So you get this very anachronistic feeling, even though he's dressed in his you know Pushkinian garb with his hat and cane and everything. Um, it looks like he's smiling directly at us, and so you get that. You get the you know it's these, these similar tensions. Uh, that you're trying attempts to do portraiture, attempts to to reflect history, to to Im- embed us in Pushkin's own time, but at the same time, some kind of attempt, usually unsuccessful, but uh, what matters is the fact that it's there to make the image resonate with the present, to to make it um, have some kind of um, you know, memory of the future—you could say, right? Some kind of sense that the of of how things are going to change and, and how things will be um, transformed. The best is this uh, painting by um, um, blanking on his name, Ulyanov. Um, I think well, that's Lenin. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The, <laughs> it's it's a famous painting that probably everyone has seen um where uh pushkin is is sort of standing in front of a mirror with his with with his wife at a at a ball and he's dressed in his commander um, uniform and you have in the reflection in the mirror the staircase kind of going up uh with all these sort of grandees um you know court figures um kind of glaring at pushkin uh, with with um, with great hostility. Um, And Pushkin is kind of turning his head. um, And so you see like one eye as he's turning back. And the eye is of course looking at the viewer. Um, But, you know, technically he's looking at these guys that we see in the mirror, but it creates this very strange effect where it's like, it's almost like he's looking back at us and sharing his disgust at these people with, with the contemporary viewer of the painting. Uh, And it creates this very weird uh, effect where his head is kind of, uh, the only thing that has proper perspective everything else is kind of more flattened by the mirror um, uh, effect um, but you know it ends up looking like this mirror is a painting within the painting um, and we're we're sharing in this kind of effect of fused horizons where like Pushkin and us can we know we're in the know about how terrible these these um, these lackeys of the Czar were um so you get all sorts of things like that uh, and you know but uh, I, I I separated basically. I, I, I talk about um, visual imagery. Well, not not visual imagery, but sort of um, static imagery versus time based um, um, imagery. So I put film and and historical novels together. Um, whereas the monuments and the paintings are in are in a separate chapter. Um, but but when you get into the historical stuff, it becomes a lot more difficult. Uh, to create that, that fusion of, of horizons because you would have to kind of put a contemporary figure back in the history somehow. Um, because you, if you're trying to actually show the evolution of Pushkin as a character, as, as a historical figure, um, it's quite difficult. So and what happens there that I, that I talk about is, is Pushkin ends up getting the tragedy comes to the fore that you feel that he's stranded there. That's kind of, they do it through negation basically that you get this feeling that Pushkin is kind of caught in this, uh, this um, backwards time and desperately needs to be rescued. Um, And then the the film or the novel will end uh, usually with just that feeling that we, you know, that Pushkin is moving forward, but he's moving forward towards us um, um, who will be the, uh, you know, the final redemption of, of all the horrible stuff that he had to go through. So, mm-hmm.
0: So let me ask one last question about the book. Um, in your final chapter, you're sort of giving the reader a ride through 20th century Russian literature, showing how the memory and the legacy of the Jubilee persisted in it. So maybe you could summarize some important points of the journey for us and also talk about your meeting with Prigov, which was a very exciting episode in that chapter.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, you mean from the preface the Prigov? Well, yeah, I mean, basically, I just, I, 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 mean, my general, um, you know, approach to Stalinist culture is that the, um, you know, like I said before, the militant, uh, energy of the revolution basically doesn't last beyond the war. Um, that, you know, late Stalinist culture is a very different animal from, from Stalinist culture in the thirties that you kind of lose this, um, this willing this militant kind of, uh, passion, um. Basically meaning that uh, you're willing to kind of go the distance in, in, um, you know, uh, exploring these kind of crazy things like this, this attempt to fuse these different attitudes to time that you get on the Jubilee. Um, And so instead what you get, so I talk about um, uh, some, some sort of 70s era writing by uh, about their own childhood. Uh, um, They're quite biographical texts about their own childhood and the uh, and experience of the jubilee and how this 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 knowledge of the kind of the stale um, the way official culture became so stale after the war um, colors the the memory of those of, of the events um, and and focuses uh, so like in Thievenot's case he focuses specifically on this. Uh, this, the, his, the, kid in the story, uh, has to make an, uh, a Pushkin album for the Jubilee and he's like cutting, he's like ruining books, cutting out pictures from books, but then the glue he has is so is bad and it kind of, uh, seeps through the pictures and it looks terrible. And then he like misspells something, uh, you know, and he gets, he gets no prize or, or respect for his, or his project. Um, but then this is linked to, uh, it's a, it comes to him in the book as a flashback. Because the book is <laughs> Disappearance, um, which is a lot, part of it is about his, um, his, uh, father getting persecuted during the purges. Um, but <clears throat> it, it, it's a flashback from where he's in during the war where he's like painting, uh, banners or slogans or something. And he also makes a spelling mistake but uh, during the, in the war, his, I think it's his sister, someone is there with him, says like, no one's even going to notice. No one even looks at these slogans anymore. Um, So you get this kind of weird uh, image of a a person who was actually, you know, really invested in the the Pushkin Jubilee, who was like, wanted to get a prize, wanted to do these things that they were telling him to do, but it was too difficult that there was some kind of, um, you know, uh, just, just the, that you couldn't produce these hybrid, uh, structures without, you know, incredible kind of, uh, um, you know, without, you know, I mean, it's true of even the elite works that everything is kind of failing um, as it tries to um, produce these, these hyperstructures. It's very rare that you get uh, works that actually succeed, succeed in doing it. And that creates a lot of suffering in the person who is actually, uh, you know, um, following this kind of militant model, and, and is trying to do what what, what you're supposed to do, uh, and resurrect the the past, and and, uh, and you know redeem the tragedy, and all these different things. But if you fail to do it, you feel pretty bad. Um, and uh, so you get this. So basically, you know, the idea is that after after the war itself, you know, this this and maybe probably already during it, you get people are uh, um, you know not willing to put that kind of investment into things um because you know it's 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 just not nice when it when it uh, backfires um and so pe- they, so it becomes stale it becomes more ritualized and so on um and then i kind of move forward to to the conceptualist like to Prigov uh as this kind of weird inverse kind of still militant uh um um you know uh tendency where uh they kind of it's like it's almost like the stalinist um You know, the the moment when Stalinism was still really alive in the 1930s, it's really been lost. It's been forgotten because of all this um, decline in militancy that you get in the, you know, 30, whatever, 30 years, 30, 40 years between. Um, And uh, Prigov is basically sort of, it's like he's discovering these little bits of of Pushkin uh, imagery uh, and picking them up and sort of identifying himself with them. Um uh, and you know and this the the story I, I kind of even fits with that because the basically when I was writing my master's thesis with uh, Kathy Napomnishi at, at Columbia, um I I was focusing at the at that time on the pedagogical stuff on how um, Pushkin changed the way literature was taught in the schools and Kathy had this thing where like you always had to get native informants for any project um, because it's it's important to. To, to know these people in the first place, but also you want to, you know, get around and, and with your ideas and so on. Uh, and for instance, you know, uh, it was Kathy it was, you know, the best idea was always to interview famous people. Um, so she had me interview, uh, Prigo when he was staying at her house, cause he'd come to, to Columbia for a reading. And I didn't even know who he was really at the time. It was like my senior in graduate school. And so I was just using him as a native informant and asking him how he like, uh, um, How what he remembered about learning studying Pushkin in school, um, and he was like really didn't understand what was going on, and he was like I didn't read Pushkin, I played with tanks and airplanes, you know, like other little boys. Uh, what are you talking about? And then it finally got so frustrated that he just started reading, reciting his Pushkin poems, um, and that it's kind of interesting because you, like I was asking him to to take this kind of meta position uh, towards his biography. And sort of just, you know, to tell this story of, of, of you know, or of history, of, of Soviet history and so on. Um, but the, the truth is what, it has to be kind of embodied. It has to be a performance um, of these, these peculiar, um, this peculiar uh, kind of uh, signifier that, that Pushkin becomes uh, in the Stalinist period. Um, and and that's and so it's, it becomes kind of like this. He is doing a similar thing to what the uh, the children do in in, in in effect in the in during the jubilee in as a kind of militant. He's sort of bringing this this dead Stalinist signifier back to life um, in his Pushkin poems. So and you know and then you know I I talk about uh, Maman's film Buck, Buck and the sideburns where uh, you get a kind of that. That idea of playing, of playful identification, over identification that we associate with, still um, loses its kind of uh, slipperiness and, and no longer functions. So you have in that in that film this interesting moment when the the main character who has been you know dressing up as Pushkin and, and getting other people to join a kind of uh, paramilitary Pushkin organization to take over this town that it, that the the newspaper prints like they 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 end up beating up the. The people at a demonstration, and the newspaper compares him to Hitler, and it it, it makes him cry because, in a sense, this this uh, identification, this over identification with Pushkin, it, it's not it's 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 always meant to be both serious and ironic. Right? This is the nature of of Stob, that you can't um, position yourself clearly. You don't know if the performance is a performance or not. Right? It's so it's so overdone that it it's, it has the effect of of seeming like uh, it's actually something super serious. But if once you say like, ah, these guys are actually fascists, they are real fascists, then it just, it's like its whole structure kind of falls apart. Um, cause you have to maintain this kind of deadpan, uh, irony alongside of it for it to, to work, which is the same thing that you get with pretty good poetry. So I talk about that cause that film is from 1990, that this is a kind of, uh, nostalgia or a kind of, um, you know, mourning the end of this underground culture that was, uh, um, you know, no longer really feasible uh, during Perestroika. Um, And, uh, yeah, but uh, otherwise, you know, I I looked at some contemporary textbooks um, in Russia and how it's interesting that you'll find little fragments of the old Stalinist discourse sometimes appearing in schools today, like with just the the memory of these phrases was so ingrained in people over the years that uh, they kind of just appear unattributed, um, in contemporary textbooks without any kind of consciousness of the, of their Stalinist context. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I generally, my, my look at, uh, contemporary Russian textbooks suggests that they are, they're not, at least when I was doing it, this was during the kind of the mini thaw that you had in, in the mid presidency. Uh, they weren't, um, pursuing this kind of hybrid temporal structure anymore, that um, it was pretty monumentalist. Um, which, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and uh, it would be interesting to go back and see if anything's changed, because I know they've, they've recently um, been redoing a lot of textbooks again, uh, most notably in history. But uh, it would be interesting to see if, they've, if their approach to literature has changed with the new kind of radicalization you've been getting in, in Russian uh, politics. But,
0: and what are you working on at the moment? Do you continue to work on Pushkin or are you doing a different project altogether?
1: Uh, I have a couple things going on simultaneously um, now, but my biggest project is actually quite similar to the Pushkin project, but it's about uh, Zoe Kosmodumianskaya. Um, so it's another kind of uh, cultural um, um, analysis of a kind of, icon um, that uh, was celebrated specifically, but this time moving forward and and looking at the war um, and a little bit more on how, uh, you know, this image of a, of a militant uh, um, was kind of cleansed and domesticated after the war, uh, specifically in terms of gender. So Zoya Kazmierensky becomes this, even though she has this uh, androgynous kind of Joan of Arc uh, quality, uh, in the original um, uh, representations of her, she increase, is increasingly feminized as, as time goes on. Uh, she becomes this kind of disciplinary tool rather than a, a kind of uh, model of, of uh, the ecstasy of, of, of giving yourself to the cause, that kind of thing. Um, and then in that, in that project, I also bring it up to the contemporary moment. Uh, probably about half the book is going to be about uh, contemporary attitudes towards, towards the figure of, of Kuzma in the war and the image of the Soviet militant. So I have, I, so I went around Russia and interviewed all sorts of people who are, um, who are the sort of, uh, memory keepers who, you know, um, maintain museums dedicated to Kazmiedmiyansky or write about her still, or, um, you know, work in archives, um, and so on, uh, and interviewing them about their, you know, their feelings about uh, contemporary Russia and, and, and whether or not the, this image of Zoya is still relevant or, or why it's not relevant, what has changed and things like that. Uh, so I, I talked to those people in the one and then I did, uh, some projects with some contemporary leftist, uh, uh, artists in, in Russia about Zoya, Kazemian where they are kind of, you know, they want, many of them want to identify with her, uh, to identify with this militant, uh, image, um, but they're nervous because of the, 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 um, not just the, the way the Soviet union used, used images like this, but specifically the, the contemporary moment in Russia where the war has become this, um, this very, uh, um, you know, it's become the foundation of society in many ways. And, and it's the, uh, used as, as how you define who your enemies and who your friends are and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that's my main project. I'm, I'm I, I, I still I write articles um when I can about Pushkin's own works uh, usually in terms of uh intertextual um things either Pushkin reworking things from the the western tradition or ma- or sometimes uh people who come after Pushkin <clears throat> kind of uh, manipulating his um images and motifs t- uh, in different ways uh, and I, you know, I'm, I work a bit on contemporary Russian poetry and, and, um, I've done some other contemporary Russian art, um, stuff. I have, uh, I've been translating this, this poet Galina Rimbu, uh, for a couple of years now and her, the translations have been really popular and published in a lot of different places. And I just got an offer to do, a, to put it all together into a book. Um.
0: Congratulations. So that's pretty exciting. That's terrific.
1: Yeah, so, got a lot going on. Uh, so, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's the bulk of it right now. Trying to, uh, just trying to keep my head above water with all these different things.
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck with all of your projects. And thank you very much for being with us today on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies.
1: Mm-hmm, my pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan brooks Plant author of greetings Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics, and the Russian National Bard. Please join us again in two weeks for a new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And until then, this was your host, Alga Breininger. Take care.